It's Jong Hu Hustle. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Jong Hu Hustle. I'm here with my co host, Eric Farmer. And I'm here with my co host, Eli Kurtz. Today, we're talking about A Better Tomorrow, the first entry into the heroic bloodshed genre pioneered by director John Woo. Yeah, and it's really a greatest hits of people that we have seen, directors, producers, that sort of thing. We get to see Chayon Fat. We get to have a movie produced by Sui Hark. And we get to see T Lung from my favorite, The Magic Blade, go from wandering swordsman to kind of not cool dad. Yeah. <laughs> it's. I just realized, actually, T Lung is from your favorite Wuxia, and mm-hmm. uh, Chai Yun Fat is from one of my very favorite Wuxias. It's a real uh, tag team situation. It there. sure is. It sure is. And it's a, it's a great sort of melodramatic picture. Uh, we do have a little bit of content warning uh, in just that it's a John Woo movie, so you can expect a lot of people to get shot, and there are a lot of scenes of, of bloodshed and squibbing and blood flying all over the place. So let that be a warning. Yes, indeed. It is called the heroic bloodshed genre for a reason. They are not fooling around. It is both of those things. But let's thank our patrons before we go too much further. Yes, and as folks who listen to the show know, we do have a Patreon that you can support us over at patreon.com slash Hustle. And uh, with no more ado, a big, big thank you to Andres Gabrielson, Andreas Devour, Andrew Dacey, Brian Kurtz, Chromatic Chameleon, Craig, Dave, David Millions, Derek Smith, Eric Bontz, Fraser Ronald, Gallant Knight Games, J. David Chrisman, Jared Rasher, Jason Detman, Jim, John Cole, Kevin Lovecraft, Laura Penrod, Leonard Murphy, Liam Murray, Lowell Francis, Misdirected Mark Productions, PK, Rob Abrazado, Sean Nicholson, Sean P. Kelly, and Todd Crapper. Thank you very much for your support. Thank you so much. We just, we really appreciate it. One thing to note is that we had mentioned in our previous side hustle that some changes were coming. They are still coming, but they are slightly further down the road than we thought. So just stay tuned. You don't have to do anything yet. Uh, and thanks for your support. Mm-hmm. But they are very exciting changes. So uh, <laughs> oh boy. if you're not excited, you need to get with the program. Get excited. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Eric, do you want to tell us about the details of this film? Let's talk about it. So the movie is A Better Tomorrow from 1986. It was directed by John Woo. It was written by John Woo, Chan Hik Kai, and Lung Sukwa. Cinematography was by Wong Wing Hong. And the action director was Tung Wei. And then this cast, you're going to like some of the names on here. We've talked about it. We have T Lung as Sung Se Ho, Cha Yun Fat as Mark Lee, Leslie Chung as Sung Se Kit, Ways Lee as Shing, and Emily Chu as Jackie. Yeah, and uh, we mentioned Emily Chu as Jackie. She actually uh, does not have a very big part in the story. Uh, she's the sort of character that you could replace with a cardboard cutout, and it wouldn't really change anything. So um, this is definitely an action movie from the 80s. Yeah, um, it definitely and- is. I think if you could definitely remove her from the movie, and, and literally nothing would change. Yeah. Um, I think it's to give uh, Kit something to make him more likable, uh, and it does not work. It does not. It does not at all. We actually <laughs> like him less because of the way he interacts with his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, let's talk about this movie. Uh, it starts off with Ho and Mark, best friends and highly successful money counterfeiters for the triad in Hong Kong. Ho is close with his little brother Kit, who's just joined the police academy. 
While visiting home, Ho's father tells him that Ho must leave the triad to preserve his relationship with his brother. Ho swears he will after one last job. And I'm sure it'll work out great. Yeah, it always does. (laughs) So Ho heads to Taiwan with Xing, a new recruit in the triad. But they're double-crossed by the Taiwanese gangsters, and Ho ends up surrendering so Xing can get away. Back home, a triad member goes to kidnap Ho's father to make sure Ho doesn't blab to the police. Kit, Jackie, and Ho's father fight off the gangster, but Ho's father is killed in the action. At the same time, Mark assassinates some Taiwanese gangsters in Hong Kong to get revenge, but he's shot in the leg during his escape. So flash forward three years later, Ho gets out of prison determined to live on the right side of the law. He finds honest work at a taxi company that employs ex-cons, but everyone is pressuring him to return to the triad. Kit rejects his brother for the death of their father. Shing has become the new leader of the triad and is worried Ho will turn against them if he's not brought back into the fold. Uh, And Mark, now in a leg brace from his injury three years ago, has been reduced to an errand boy for Shing and has waited desperately for Ho's return so that they can reclaim their place as high-powered triads. Consequences abound despite Ho's best intentions. Kit's police career is stalled by his brother's return, and Mark, whose only dream seems hopeless now, spins increasingly out of control. Shing keeps putting pressure on Ho to return, including destroying the taxi company where Ho works. Shing eventually beats Mark within an inch of his life and ambushes Kit, sending him to the hospital. After an impassioned speech from Mark, Ho reluctantly agrees to strike back against Shing. So, Mark steals a computer tape, containing printing plate data for the triad counterfeiting operation. Ho and Mark use the tape to blackmail Shing, and we learn it was Shing who betrayed Ho three years previously. Ho secretly sends the tape to Kit so that he can turn it over to the police, but Kit rushes to the scene of the blackmail exchange and is taken hostage. A huge gunfight ensues. Mark berates Kit to finally forgive his brother before Mark is gunned down by Shing. Shing nearly gets away by turning himself into the police, but Kit symbolically gives Ho his gun so that Ho can kill Shing at last. Ho takes the fall for the killing and goes back to prison to prove to his brother that he cares about doing the right thing. End of movie. So you'll notice that four names kept kept popping up. And it's Ho, T. Lung's character, Mark, who is Chayan Fat's character, Shing, the other gangster, and Kit, uh, Ho's brother. And if there are other characters in the movie, there's a Taiwanese police detective that's after Mark and and also after Ho and, and all of this kind of stuff, and kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Fun fact, by the way, that police detective is played by John Woo. Oh, for real? Oh, that's fun. Yeah. And... This is just what we see from John Woo. From I hadn't seen this one before, but I've seen some of his other movies. And they're just pure melodrama. Yeah, and so I guess before we get into the movie too much, we should probably define heroic bloodshed as a genre for, for folks. I found that the term was coined by a magazine called Eastern Heroes, particularly by an editor named Rick Baker in the 1980s. And it largely describes the styles of directors like John Woo and Ringo Lam, who we haven't seen anything from so far, but he worked a lot with Xiao Yun-Fat. He did several movies with Jean-Claude Van Damme, and uh, he even directed Jackie Chan once in a movie called Twin Dragons. All right. uh, Which I think I've seen before, but anyway. I've seen the one where Jean-Claude Van Damme plays twins, but I'm not sure I've seen the one where Jackie Chan plays twins. We should do an entire subseries of <laughs> twin martial arts movies. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm here for it. I'm here for yeah, it. Yeah, okay, cool. Put it, uh, Bob, write that down. 
<laughs> but Baker defined the heroic bloodshed genre as a Hong Kong action film that features a lot of gunplay and gangsters rather than kung fu. Lots of blood, lots of action. So ultimately a fairly simple definition. Obviously, it's explored in much more detail through film and criticism, you know, over the past several decades. But the basic recipe is pretty simple. It is. I think that while they both share a melodramatic core, um, and I think we'll talk about this later, that there's a certain like moral dimension that's different. And I think that there is definitely a difference when it comes to violence. Yeah, I, I was telling you before the show, we can see pretty clearly that there are a lot of lessons, both in terms of film production and in terms of storytelling that this genre takes from Wuxia, but it does feel pretty distinct. Right. So we definitely have, so in, in the sort of similar category, right, we definitely have the underworld and a character struggling against it, uh, trying to, you know, whenever they they move outside of that world, it creates ripples that affect people in sort mm-hmm. of a larger scale than than would normally happen. Yeah. We still yeah. have people who are living by their principles, living and dying by their principles. Mm-hmm. We have people who are corrupt or betraying their principles in one way or another for personal gain. We see that the civic force is weak compared to the underworld force. They're not doing a good job of keeping people safe or having mm-hmm. having control or even being effective. All of the police that we see in this movie are pretty ineffective. They are either yeah. chasing the wrong people according to what we, the audience, see, uh, or they're like Kit and uh, they are unlikable jerks. Yeah, we do see them sort of as the cavalry trope. Mm-hmm. There are a couple times in the movie where it's like just overwhelming police presence makes it such that you cannot fight back and you just have to surrender. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, the police are mostly hands off, it seems, or incapable of of following their leads or for one reason or another. Right. They can't tread into that sort of underworld. And then the, the character who's sort of the connection between those kit suffers a lot for it. Mm-hmm. His father gets killed. He's he is denied a promotion over and over and over again, despite the yeah. fact that he's a talented police officer. So his life is really affected, but only because he's the join. Right. Yeah. He's he's really caught between the two of them. And in that way, you know, it's a it's sort of a binary between Kit and his brother Ho. Mm-hmm. They're both caught between these worlds because of their connection to each other. And that is sort of the central narrative fuel of the movie we also get a lot of narrative fuel about the relationship between ho and mark but as far as the law and the underworld goes it's really a relationship between kit and ho that matters right because ho is also affected because he has sort of a similar thing in that he has a police brother that shing is worried about uh, especially because he's he's uh, really ambitious and he's trying to take down shing to begin with but also he has the connection to to ho and so they they have a sort of a mirror relationship there. And I think I think in a lot of ways that feels Wuxia like. Mm-hmm. But I think there's kind of some moral elements that feel different to me. Uh there's a quote in the movie that really summed it up and the Taiwanese police detective who's chasing after Ho and Mark sees Ho after he comes out of prison and he's basically trying to get him to flip. And he says, well, you know, you're going to you're going to mess up. And the quote in the movie is a bad guy for a day will never be a good guy. 
And he's like, basically, once you've been in the underworld, you can't ever escape. Yeah. And I think that summary that you gave after the quote makes a lot of sense for me as a connection to Wuxia. Most Sha are good guys that we've seen in the stories that we've watched. Mm -hmm. And so the phrase, a bad guy for a day will never be a good guy, doesn't really apply to them. But if you abstract that just a little more and you say once you're in this world you'll never get out of it that is exactly wuxia we see that in Ip man we see that a little bit in dragon mm-hmm. also with uh donnie yen one well, and in dragon he specifically was a bad guy right right so that actually does that does really apply it it had a kind of a moral tone to it when i watched it in the movie but now that i just sort of talk about it out loud if you step back from sort of the action of the movie and just think of it as like underworld and regular world then it definitely Mm -hmm. does map pretty well yeah and i think that the moral element in the movie is a cool one to explore too i just think that it's got more universal uh applications than Mm -hmm. than the movie strictly speaking you know but yeah i i thought that it was really interesting that the real dramatic fuel of this movie is that ho wants desperately to be a good guy like he is a good guy at heart but the world will not let him get away from his bad past. And that ultimately spells the doom of a lot of people around him. Now, it was unclear in the movie whether Ho and Kit's dad was a triad member who had retired. I kind of got the sense that he was based on the fight uh, when the assassin, you know, they were going to come and kidnap his family or do whatever so that Ho wouldn't flip. Yeah, because he was scrappy. He was scrappy, and he went he went for violence right away. I don't know. It was just an interesting relationship to see his father, who had sort of stepped back and had halfway a normal family and halfway his older son, Ho, sort of fell into that life. Yeah, you know, my read of the dad is that he may have been in the criminal underworld, but the reason why he got away was because he's basically on hospice care. It mm-hmm. seemed like, you know, every time we see a shot of him, he's in his bed. Mm-hmm. And most of the time he's asleep or he's just drowsy and giving advice to his son or something. And I think, you know, I, I said he got out, but at the same time, a gangster came for him and ended up killing him. So that's true. Know, he so he didn't, didn't get, get out. out. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> a bad guy for a day will never be a good that's guy. That's true. That's true. And he he was still a he was still a bad guy all the way to the end. He was uh, quite the fighter. Uh, he was, you know. I mean, that was another interesting part of the movie for me because the gangster who showed up to kidnap Dad mm-hmm. was a the first really clear display of scale that we had seen. He is this triad enforcer who shows up. We don't ever know his name or anything about him. He's just good at sneaking into the apartment. He, well, and Jackie, you know, she left her front door wide open. So (laughs) it's not like they were operationally very tight, but um, the gangster gets in and then he attacks dad and then dad and Jackie start fighting him. And then Kit shows up and Kit starts fighting him too. And all three of these people are trying to take out this dude and they throw him through uh, glass panes on like a, a hutch. They stab him. They throw boiling water in his face and none of it actually stops him until he kills dad. And then he seems to pass out on the ground or something. But right. it he took three he, people. He pulls, he pulls the knife out of his own back. Yeah. And still manages to kill the father. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like he he was a real wrecking ball. And he was. that was clearly like, okay, well, 
Jackie is a cardboard cutout of a person, right? Like mm-hmm. she she clearly doesn't matter according to the producers of this film. Dad is past his prime, so he's also kind of not effective in this fight. But Kit is training to be a police officer. And I think the training part of that was his critical flaw in the fight. And that's why all three of them combined couldn't even defeat this dude. Well, and I think it, it also had to do, I think it showed that Kit was trained to fight but he wasn't experienced in fighting, mm-hmm. you know, whereas, you know, when you see later in the movie, you see people with all of these wounds and, and things, and they just keep fighting and they're still awesome because they have all of this experience. They've lived long enough to gather this experience. Yeah. And I, I think Kit was a few crisis scenes and a training montage or two away from being able to defeat that guy. I agree. I agree. So maybe by the end of the movie. Well, we'll see. Actually, we did see. And he does go on. He joins in the rampage, but uh, he's so tied up by his disdain for his brother that that is his narrative arc. We don't see anything about him realizing his capability for violence. Mm -hmm. It's, It's strictly about will he forgive his brother or not? And he does, but his brother still goes to jail. Well, it's it's all effort on Ho's part, really. Right. Yeah. Ho dragged his brother along kicking and screaming. His brother, I didn't like his brother very much. I think no. there's a lot of cultural notes that are tied up in his brother's arc. But I was just like, dude, like, you're you're really being hard headed about this. You know, but if, if so, let's 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 step out of the movie. Like if if your sibling was a drug dealer and then. Because they were a drug dealer, somebody came and they killed your dad. You probably wouldn't forgive them. I just think that the actor probably wasn't. I don't think he had very many notes in his acting repertoire. (laughs) That's fair. So I think that the beef between brothers was legitimate. Uh, I just don't think it played that well in that that we weren't like, oh, yeah, Kit, we agree with you. Because we could see T-Lung trying to be. I'm sorry, we could see Ho trying to be a good guy. And we just didn't see Kit trying right. to be a good and again, guy. again, you know, like his treatment of, of Jackie is just deplorable. He's constantly mm. throwing tantrums. Oh. He brings home a bag of trash so that he can find one note that's been tossed into the trash can. And what he does is just dump it out all over the kitchen floor. And then once he finds the note, he goes to his computer or his typewriter and he starts searching for something and leaves Jackie to pick up all this garbage, all this food and stuff that's just been dumped all over the kitchen uh, floor. And it's on her birthday that this is happening. <laughs> it's right, like right, right. And then and then she's like, "No, it's my birthday. I lit all these candles on this oh. cake." And he's like, "No, I'm working." And so she turns <laughs> off all the power. And he's like, "Fine, I got a lamp here. Right. It works just fine." And she's like, "Well, you forgot my birthday." And he's like, "No, I didn't forget. I got you a present." And you're like, "So you were just being a jerk to right. be a it's jerk." Terrible. Like, Jackie, run, run immediately. You can do so much better. You're a co- you're an accomplished cellist, you know? Like go live your life. That's right. Uh but anyway, our our, <laughs> our sort of rant about yeah. Kit over. <laughs> I do want to be a little more explicit comparing Heroic Bloodshed and Wuxia against each other. I think there are three places that I thought would be fruitful for exploration. That is violence, melodrama, and inequality. Violence and melodrama, mm-hmm. we've talked about a lot being core themes of Wuxia. And inequality is something that we've talked about maybe a little less often, but it's still certainly present there. So let's start with violence. Mm-hmm. Well, you had some thoughts about violence, I know. Yeah, I was reflecting on the movie and I was like, you know, this violence doesn't 
feel like communication to me. It comes when the characters have been pushed as far as they can go within their powers, and then violence erupts. And so it's very much a... But it's almost a climax in lots of different ways, in that there is all of this tension, and the characters reach an impasse where violence is literally their only option, and then it explodes gloriously. And I would say also, one of the things that occurred to me when you were talking about this earlier was that this is also definitely an 80s action movie and these men are big stoic you know shut off men who have their like they can be very physically intimate in this movie but they're also really unwilling to compromise in any way yeah that's an interesting well i want to talk circle back around to that but sure well what i was going to say is that Violence seems like the only way that they can vent their emotions in this movie. And because of that, I would say that it's even more toxic than the violence we see in Wuxia. That's interesting. So when I was watching the movie, I was like, wow, they're they're really like touching and they're showing a lot of emotion. And Chai and Fad is like being brought to tears because of his relationship with Ho. And, and I, I thought, wow, they're, you know, they are really expressing a lot of emotion, but mostly they're expressing frustration or sadness or anger, right? Other than sort of the playful at the beginning, everything's going fine. We're, we're all buds here, sort of wrestling grab ass that goes on. You're right. So it, it sort of helps me reframe it as as well, because, you know, I was watching it. I was like, wow, these characters are, are much less sort of reserved, but they are reserved in a different way that is more dangerous. Yeah, they're comfortable touching each other. But like when Chagian Fat is crying, the lines that he's saying there are, I told myself I would never cry again. And it's like, dude, cry when you need to, you know, that's good. <laughs> it's okay, buddy. <laughs> you, you, you get it out. <laughs> But he's also saying that the last time he cried was when someone pointed a gun at his head. Right. And that he was never going to let that happen again. Right. And that's legit trauma, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, yeah. So I think they are certainly more physically affectionate than we're used to seeing here in the United States in the 21st century. They are comfortable with their emotions but only a pretty limited range of their emotions mm -hmm. they're comfortable being angry and they're comfortable being frustrated but they're that's kind of it right yeah and i think that's basically all i think those are the two sort of emotions that we see on kit mm -hmm. whereas we get to see a little bit more on ho which I think he's why he becomes a more rounded character and yeah. we believe his transformation yeah and i had seen some information about this movie after it came out it was the breakout role for chow yun fat mm -hmm. and apparently a lot of people imitated mark his fashion and his demeanor for like a decade after the movie came out they just really glommed onto the character but and because of that they said that chow yun fat overshadowed t lung in this movie and i think to my eyes T Lung's role is more compelling, his character arc is more compelling, and like their performances are about the same. But to see Ho grappling so hard with all of the consequences of his past life and trying so hard to be better was just as compelling for me, if not more compelling, than seeing Mark 
calcified in this triad role, even if it means he has to live on the very bottom for three years and hoping that he can get back and then realizing that he won't be able to. Right. He's just living on like a dream of revenge for three years as yeah. his life gets worse and worse and worse. Right, right. And then and then yeah. we see the fallout of that. And that's compelling too. I just think that mm-hmm. the portrayal of Ho is a little more well-rounded and interesting to me. Yeah, but Chai Fata's mark looked really cool. I mean, he did. He always had and he was smoking a cigarette and then he had a match in his mouth. Oh, come <laughs> yeah. on. Oh, he's so cool. He hides guns and potted plants. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean... Expect more of that if we watch more John Woo movies. Yeah, good. So we've talked about violence, and then we kind of segued naturally into talking about the melodrama of this movie, too. All this emotional volatility and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Is there anything else that we need to cover in those two topics? I don't think so. I think we've covered it. Okay, cool. Well, we've kind of hinted at the inequality pieces as well. We've got Mark, who was at the top, and then all of a sudden he's at the bottom. And he goes from giving an entire roll of bills to Shing in the beginning of the movie when they get into a car to cleaning the windows for Shing as Shing, the new top dog, gets into the car and Shing is like, oh, hey, here's some money. Go buy your lunch. But he just throws it on the ground and Mark has to bend down and pick it up with his with his leg brace on and everything. Mm -hmm. It's a huge change in circumstances. And we see stuff like that elsewhere, too. You know, even Kit being a, a new policeman, being stymied in his promotion by the boss because his because of his brother's actions. And Ken, the taxi cab owner, who uh, has employed only ex-cons because he thinks of them as orphans and takes them under his wing. So do you think that this is more exemplified here in the heroic bloodshed genre or... Does it tie back to Wuxia? Like, where do you think that line is? I think that in Wuxia, the inequality is maybe a little more tied to the world. Mm -hmm. Like in this movie, the inequality is tied really closely to personal circumstances. But we're not necessarily seeing that this is the way everybody lives. We're seeing that this is the circumstances of these individual characters. Whereas in Wuxia, it's like, oh, all of the common folk are suffering and all of the nobility are garbage. Mm -hmm. And it's a much more universalized sort of setting presentation it's almost more like a like a class system yeah yeah i i think i think so and that is interesting to consider because of the historical time periods that they portray too you know wuxia Mm -hmm. is typically a more historical time period more ancient that sort of thing and especially through the lens of history it's easy to look at previous eras and to reduce those to more monolithic classes or cultures or whatever Whereas whenever you're making a movie in Hong Kong in the 1980s that's set in Hong Kong in the 1980s, you have more cultural familiarity in your audience and you can you can let a lot of that stuff just exist in the background. Mm-hmm. Because it's set in the modern era, you don't have to do shortcutting the way right. that you do when it's historical. Yeah, yeah. And I know that Chinese culture... It's difficult to translate a lot of Chinese works because their manuscripts are so full of idiom that go back Mm. hundreds of years. And there's just a 
generally more historical familiarity in Chinese culture than there is in much of Western culture, right? And so I, I want to be clear that I'm not saying, I'm not necessarily reducing Chinese culture to the same as Western culture. Uh, I'm just saying that, like, broadly speaking, everybody, when they look back in history, it's easier to look at things more monolithically, even if you have a more nuanced view than some other culture does. Sure. But I could see this story being transposed to a Western setting. And that's happened to John Woo's movies before, or, you know, or at least Hong Kong cinemas get remade in Hollywood or, or wherever. And they translate reasonably well in terms of the structure and the display of inequality and character. Mm -hmm. I do want to say one last thing about inequality. So the last moments of the movie are where I realized, oh yeah, this inequality is definitely a theme in this movie. It's when Ho tries to shoot Shing, but he's out of bullets and Shing just walks out and he's like, oh look, you're out of bullets and the cops are here. Well, I guess there's nothing to do but turn ourselves in. But you know what? I've got money. I'll be out of this in three days. You're going to have to turn yourself in too, and you're going to be in jail forever. And he's just super smug about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. So if you have the means, then you can avoid your consequences. It's like the sort of meme that is passed around today about how fines are actually just a way to say this is legal for rich people. Right, right. Yeah, I was going to say, good thing that's not true in real life. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, let's let's take this uh, out of the socioeconomic discussion that we've been having and move it to the table Mm -hmm. in our brand new segment, At the Table. That's right. And discerning listeners will realize that At the Table is perhaps a combination of two segments that we've had before. So one of the things that I noticed about the the difference in violence in Heroic Bloodshed versus Wuxia is that, honestly, violence as punctuation, as it's kind of used in this movie, you know, where you, you get to a period with enough tension and then you punctuate it with violence... And then you you build all the way up to the very end, and then you you have a big blowout at the end, right? Maps really well onto tabletop RPGs. Right. I mean, that's that in a lot of ways that is your archetypical role playing session, which mm-hmm. is like you do some stuff, you build up some tension, you have some violence that sort of resets it for a little bit, and then you go again, and then you have some violence, and at the end you have a lot of violence and then and then it's over Mm -hmm. and you can even a lot of the time when it's done poorly you just elide all of the tension building and it's like oh well you have this moment of violence and that punctuates this moment of violence and then that punctuates this moment of violence over (laughs) and over and over again but yeah i i know what you mean it's not so much a way for the characters to communicate their ideals to each other it's a way for the characters to lash out at the circumstances of the world that are arrayed against them right it's Almost like we didn't add this to the list, but but you and I have been playing some monster hearts together. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like where, you know, things build up on the character and build up on the character and then they go dark as self. Mm-hmm. Right. And they have their big punctuated moment of being really terrible. Mm-hmm. And then in heroic bloodshed, they get to follow the consequences of that, where in a lot of RPGs, you don't. Yeah, and so to kind of reiterate, because I I was having revised thoughts already, in typical wuxia and in a wuxia game, ideally, 
the violence would carry you toward moments of personal crisis. Mm -hmm. And in this movie and in a game that would mimic the genre, it would be like you have a series of personal crises that carry you toward moments of violence instead. It's, it's really inverse. Oh, that is, yeah, that's interesting because the communication happens sort of in between, but because of the sort of melodramatic toxic masculinity impasse that you're in, that eventually those you'll hit the overflowing point from all of your various crises. And that's when it overflows into violence. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Well, also in violence, we get one of my favorite parts of this genre is heroic wounds. <laughs> They're made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> Absolutely. People get shot a lot in this movie and it only matters when it matters. So Mark gets shot in the leg and he wears a leg brace for the second half of the movie. But as, as soon as he gets guns back into his hand, he's good to go. Yeah. His wounds kind of don't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the the end scene with the three hero protagonists, Mark, Ho, and Kit, they all take hits with uh, with guns. Mm -hmm. you know, they all they all get shot, mm -hmm. and they mostly just deal with them until <laughs> until such point as there is sort of a dramatic point where Mark gets killed. Right. We can't elide that anymore. His his heroic wound meter has filled all the way up. He's gotten to go out in one big blaze of glory. He's gotten to deliver his big heroic speech, and then, boom, that's it. Yeah, so not only does Mark have his leg brace wound and then accumulates wounds that build toward this moment where he gets to uh, be emotionally realized and then he dies for it, but we can also see, like, when we walked into that final gunfight in this movie— I was like, oh, okay, so nobody's going to walk out of this alive. Everybody is going right. to die, and the credits are going to roll on a charnel house. And it wasn't the case that everybody died. It was just the case that every one of the mooks died. But Ho gets shot in the stomach, and he's holding his wound the whole time, and he looks pretty bad for a lot of this fight. It's like, oh, okay, he's definitely going to die. But then at the very end, whenever he's killing Shing and then having this moment with his brother, it's like he's just stepped off of a beach or something. He, he <laughs> He's totally fine. And it's like, yeah, I guess I'll go to prison instead of dying here in my own guts on the ground. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, cool. So no, it, do it really doesn't matter, does it? And uh, Kit gets his injury earlier on when he's ambushed. And then he comes back into the police office with his arm in a sling. And the police chief is like, no, you, you, you're supposed to be in the hospital. And Kit's like, no, look, I can lift up a chair. <laughs> and then he throws the chair across the room. And it's like, oh, I guess you are better. Okay. <laughs> so I think wounds are a measure of, I think, I think when you take those wounds, it sets a clock for your character. And you you get to choose what you do with that sort of remaining resource. In, but in a lot of ways, it makes you better, right? Like it, it makes Mark desperate, and he's sort of living his best life gunning down all of these mooks. You know, he's turning around and shooting mooks that, like, pop up after he turns around because he's just so tuned in right. to the violence that's going on around him. And... I think like that's kind of a fun thing that can play out at the table because a lot of times we play sort of 
you know, ablative style characters where, you know, you, you take wounds and it doesn't really matter till you take the last wound. Or you take wounds and you get worse and worse and worse until you either have to give up or die. Mm-hmm. And this is different. This is more of of a parabola, right? That like it goes up very quickly. And then once you get to the top, you can decide sort of what your what your arc is going to be. You can pull a mark and you can you can ride that roller coaster all the way down and do everything you want your character to accomplish. Uh, or you can take the like the slower descent where you live, but you get to choose sort of which direction you want to go. Like, do you want to do like the big showy thing? Well, that's going to cost you. Are you going to do like the emotional work? Well, that's how you might live. And see, I was thinking this is only really true of Mark's injuries, but it, it's like in a genre where you're kind of a closed off toxic man who could be replaced with any gruff five o'clock shadowed other dude the injuries are what make you interesting Mm, mark mm -hmm. is kind of like this cocky playboy figure but then when he gets his leg injury all of a sudden he's got an arc waiting for him we see him struggling to walk with the leg brace but it doesn't affect him in fight scenes it just gives him a reason to get in those fight scenes in the first place that's something more significant than yeah i like violent (laughs) <laughs> that's true that's true but his character is like at home in violence we see that at the beginning and it feels like a fluke when he gets shot in the leg like we're just like oh he's so confident he's so confident he's killing everybody and then all of a sudden he gets shot in the leg uh and i think that shatters his confidence yeah again but i think you're right i think it sets him on an arc to be broken down and then recover right and we don't really see that with the other characters so much like even when right. uh even when Kit gets his arm injury or something, he bounces back really quick mm-hmm. and it doesn't really matter. It just takes him out of the action mm-hmm. for a little while. So maybe that's the difference between, maybe that's a way we can spot the difference between a lead character and a supporting character. I was originally thinking of Kit as a lead character, but mm-hmm. Mark and Ho are the ones who have, you know, things that happen to them that really affect their narrative whereas kid things happen to him injuries happen to him specifically but they're not really consequential well and if ho hadn't gotten shot in the double cross at the beginning of the movie he and shing probably could have escaped together Mm -hmm. yeah like you feel like that that's within their capabilities Mm -hmm. but because he got shot he was like well this is going to be the end if i don't surrender now and so that sets him on his character arc as well so maybe these should be dramatic wounds. Yeah, not just heroic. I mean, why not both, really? That's. I mean, I think it would be ideal if they were both. Yeah. But I think it gives you a certain amount of dramatic fuel to spend how you want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the only game that I can think of that get, makes you better when you get injured uh, is Seventh Sea. Mm. It has a kind of a death a death spiral um, in that the first major wound that you take actually increases your dice pool but i'd love to hear about some other ones that one in particular is fascinating because it alternates between better for you better for your opponents Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have a like this is strictly worse for you yeah i know what you mean by that i think i want to say i know i've heard or seen jared rasher one of our patrons talking about 
Heroic Wounds and Seventh Sea. And I want to say he's maybe familiar with some other games that might be like that. Mm -hmm. So, Jared, if you know, let us know because we'd love to find out. So moving swiftly on from Wounds, when we're talking about a John Woo shoot-em-up, we have to talk about mooks and mooks at the table. Mm -hmm. They're, They're such a great way of making your characters feel really competent. Combining this with heroic wounds also can give your characters a sense of danger, but also like make them a little better. Like when Mark gets shot in the shoulder when he's stealing the data tape, and that just makes him like desperate and cooler, and then he can do his cool move on the on the rolling cart. Mm-hmm. Then I think you have the right balance. I think mooks should be easy to mow down, easy to feel very competent as a character. And give you that that visceral thrill, but have just enough of an edge of danger that they won't kill you, because a mook can't kill a hero. Yeah, not in this genre. It seems like they're either obstacles or minor consequences, but mm-hmm. uh, and probably both at one point or another. They're like terrain in a lot of ways, and uh-huh. that that they like. Uh, or weather or something like that. They create obstacles that you have to overcome. But the cool thing is you get to overcome them by being badass. Yeah, kind of like the storm right. in Swords Without Master. Right. And you can just be like, nope, these are boring. We're we're getting rid of these uh, so we can focus on on the big thing. Or these are the appetizer for the big meal when we when we finally get to Shing. We get to the, the big bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... There are quite a few systems that that do this. Fourth edition does it really well. Uh, fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, pardon me, has some good ways of handling mooks and that they have one hit point, but they're slightly higher defense, so that they are like not they're they're easy to kill, but they're not that easy to kill. And if you get a lot, if you sort of let them run around, then then they're a problem. Um, but I think the the qualities that you want are just slightly dangerous and very easy to kill. Mm-hmm. While you were talking, I was reflecting on the sort of problematic nature of reducing human beings to scenery or, or weather that you're just supposed to chew <laughs> uh-huh. through. And I get that that's a convention of the genre, but I was asking myself, is there some way that you could somehow humanize these people without losing their ability to just be chewed through and i i think the answer is no <laughs> i think you i think you get a different genre if you do that yeah if you want to have if you want to have things that you can chew through then you do what kids cartoons do and they're all robots yeah, or they all like right. every time and a they, plane explodes you see the parachute jump out afterward Right. Or like you see the, the, the barrel behind them explodes and then they, they all flip up into the air and they sort of land off camera and you never see them right. again. And they're fine. I would assume so. They landed in the water. Right. That's not death. <laughs> and so I think if you wanted to play like the PG, PG-13 sort of way, you, there is a way to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think as soon as you start giving them like agency as characters, I think that you are all of a sudden putting... Uh, a moral quandary into the story when we already have like a central dramatic issue that we're dealing with. Right. It is weird. Yeah. It, I mean, it's one of the things that's problematic about violence. And I mean, it's good that we examine it and we say like, is it good that like we just have a bunch of faceless ninjas that we can just wipe out and 
nobody cares about. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, the answer I mean, is it's, it's not okay. Yeah, the but. answer is no. But if we're gonna play in this genre, then there are some things that we're just gonna have to accept are are not great. Yep. So I mean, violence, like like shooting people, is bad. Yeah. It's fraught. It's 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 fraught. <laughs> So we know 4th edition D&D is something that handles MOOCs pretty well. I was trying to think if there are other things that handle MOOCs pretty well. I know that there are, in Savage Worlds, the difference between a wild card and an extra. But Mm -hmm. extras are not... I would say that 4th edition D&D maybe handles it a little better in the sense that you can throw more 4th edition MOOCs at the players than you can Mm -hmm. extras in Savage Worlds. And I know that Fate, you can generate, like, an entire squad of mooks, essentially, mm-hmm. as a single character. Yeah. Uh, which gives them some danger, but they're not so dangerous. And they also, the other thing that you have to do with mooks is that they can't take a lot of time. Right. Their their resolution has to be super snappy or even automatic. So I was thinking also, Forge in the Dark games uh, are very good at creating quick one-roll obstacles that have consequences mm-hmm. that come out of them. And it's easy to chew through obstacles in that regard. Uh, mm-hmm. And then if it's interesting, you could start up a clock and dig into those obstacles with more detail. Or you can say like, what's raining down on you, like a consequence of a failed action against a bunch of guys is that you're going to take a wound. And now you can resist that and you get to tell me how that works. Right. But then but then you get a chance to respond. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think Forged in the Dark does do it pretty well it's not necessarily like as granular as some of the other systems and that's maybe that's out of the games that i'm aware of that seems like the most modern game that handles it pretty well i'm sure there are games that i'm not aware of but uh that's a call to action that we're gonna make here in a little while so stay tuned <laughs> that's right but we, we thought of a couple of things sure so if you just want like the satisfaction and actually this ends up sort of blending in the satisfaction of mowing down a lot of faceless bad guys with perhaps the moral implication that's not a great idea you have gregor hutton's 316 carnage amongst the stars where you're space marines and you're shooting bugs and you're just like like that's what you do Mm -hmm. Uh, and as the game rolls on you get better and better at it but also there's a tension there of like should we be doing this right when you're when your kill count is basically just a high score at right. a certain point, the score gets high enough that you start to think, whoa, I've killed a lot of things. Right. Are we the baddies? Yeah. <laughs> We've got skulls on our hats. <laughs> uh, and you brought one to the table. I think that the that the audience of this particular podcast would be very interested in. Yes. So G. Michael Truran of Bad Coil Games has a sort of skunk works game. Uh, I don't remember what his category name for these are, but he's created a bunch of ideas for Forged in the Dark games that have not yet been completed, but he's put them up on itch so that he can see which ones are most popular and could be developed further. And the one that I'm most excited about is called The Elysian. It's almost exactly John Wick with the serial numbers filed off. Uh, You are a hitman who is working for this hotel called the Elysian and you go off on missions and and engage in violence of that kind. I can't remember if there are crew mechanics. There may or may not be right now, but it is nonetheless a snappy little game if you want to tell the sort of stories that John Wick tells. And something that we didn't mention earlier in the show, but I think is worth mentioning here, is that we can see the bones of how 
wuxia as a genre informed the filmmaking of the heroic bloodshed genre here we can also see how heroic bloodshed informed the making of movies like john wick separated by another several decades right and almost kind of like wraps it back around into the more heterotopic underworld of the Zhang Hu in wuxia right but like by the time we come back around we have come across the the other side of the circle and now we're headed back in the other direction yeah and it's pretty cool to see i think how these different genre elements are mixed together in different times for different purposes the last thing i want to mention for at the table play is sort of just a shout out uh, and it relates to violence's punctuation in some cool ways so one of our patrons and a listener of the show alan barr recently tweeted out a thread where he talked about how he approaches fight scenes in role-playing games He used the fight with Captain America and the Winter Soldier in Captain America, the Civil War, to relate this. It's the scene where they're in an apartment and they're trying to escape while some cops of some kind are coming to try and take out the Winter Soldier. And Alan's basic premise is that in that fight, those two main characters each have abilities and talents and skills. And everything that they do in that fight, every single shot that we see them taking action, they are either reinforcing a character note that we've seen already, or they're revamping that character note in a new and interesting way. And they use the environment to make that happen. They use uh, their opponents in interesting ways. And it's just a really great thread. So you should definitely check it out. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, And thank you, Alan Barr, for tweeting that out. I think we retweeted it on the Jung Hu Hustle account, so you can probably find it there most easily. Yeah, so I mean, Alan Barr, he's a smarty pants. He is a smarty pants, that guy. You know who else is a smarty pants, Eli? Who? The rest of our listeners. Ah, you're right. They are. They're just a collective dresser drawer of smart pants, and <laughs> we we keep sort of, we've hit the point where we're like, we've done almost 30 of these things. Yeah. So we're really, we'd like to find some new games to talk about to bring into the At The Table segment. So if you know a cool indie RPG that fits the bill or has cool mechanics that we can lift out of there and place into our Wuxia-inspired game or our heroic bloodshed game, let us know. Send it to us either on Twitter, uh, Janghu Hustle, at our Gmail address, janghuhustle at gmail.com. Hit us up on the Patreon. Let us know, because we would love to even get some more some more stuff. We can only, we're just two men. And though our scale is high, we can only look at so many RPGs. Yeah, we realized that we have been doing this show for over two years. And in that time, there has been a huge explosion of small games on itch and indie designers just generally. And so we know that there are games out there that would be suitable for this, but there are so many that we just cannot keep them straight in our heads. So if you can help us out with that, we would super appreciate it. It'd be wonderful. So with that mission in mind, thanks for listening. And remember to make your Kung Fu stronger. John Hu Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Hustle.
You can reach Eli at ZapDynamic on Twitter or on his website, MythicGazetteer.com. You can reach me at Eric M. Farmer on Twitter or at my website, DogPoweredVehicle.com. You can reach both of us at Hustle on Twitter or Hustle at gmail.com or on the Misdirected Mark website. Thanks for listening.